Hello and welcome back to the Dash Podcast. We have a very special episode today with Mr. Lloyd Knight. You may have heard that name before because Lloyd was on the podcast just a couple months ago. I think it was episode 82 or 83. We are approaching episode 100 and I thought there would be no better way to progress towards that number um, than having one of my favorite guests, one of my favorite conversations back on the show. Now, before we get started, I definitely want to make sure that you know that this episode is sponsored by the Gamage Consulting Group, and we help middle school principals support student behavior. I want you to spend more time delivering feedback that your teachers can use, less time documenting behavior incidents, and more time empowering your educators to be the best version of themselves. If you're interested in learning more about this five-step process through the Gamage Consulting Group, you can go to TreyGamers.com slash shop and learn more to set up a time to talk. So without further ado, we're going to get into restorative justice today. Now, Lloyd, I, I just was telling you my cousin Keith Gamage is a solicitor in the Atlanta area or Fulton County, I should say, and his whole campaign, um, 350,000 votes were centered around restorative justice. And, and for those that don't know, it's really moving away from zero tolerance and a lot of the punitive um, punitive punishments that we have in moving towards restoring people, restoring broken people. And what one thing that he's done is have these expungement opportunities for uh, nonviolent offenders to go in, get their record clean and get a job on the same day. Now, while this is what's happening in the real world, Lord, we have an opportunity to do this in the classroom as well. Can you talk to me just for a minute about what restorative justice means to you in the context of education? So, um, Trey, I just want to say thank you again for allowing me to be on your podcast. You know, um, I had a wonderful time last time, and I think we're going to definitely be able to make a little bit of history again here today. Um, restorative justice is about recognizing the harm and then working to repair it. Mm. Uh, the practitioners of restorative justice are not those who are going to say, hey, you were wrong, now make it better. The job of a practitioner in restorative justice is to probe an individual or students to be able to see for themselves where their harm was to a situation mm. and then teaching them through conversation how to make repairs to that harm, okay? So the punitive action that people typically do would be, hey, you spilled milk all over the cafeteria floor, you have detention. Mm. What practitioner of restorative justice says, come over here, talk to me, find out why spilling the milk was counterproductive to the overall culture of our school, and then you find a way to repair that harm. Mm. So a simple way for you to repair that harm would be to say, I recognize that my school is a place that I want to have that is clean, that people are respectful to each other. And when I spilled milk all over the floor, that was contrary to those values. So I'm going to clean it up. Mm. And I think the long-term um, benefits of restorative justice far outweigh the quick, you're wrong, this is what happens. Mm. Um, that typically happens with low-level behaviors in schools. Because, hey, here's the thing. If I just scream at you and I just say, hey, man, you better clean that up. <laughs> That's not going to teach you the value of cleaning it up. 
it's not easy to do restorative justice because it requires time. It requires effort and it requires being willing to sometimes not worry about, hey, did this person get the punishment that was received? It's more about the overall holistic student and saying, hey, mm-hmm. I love you and I want you to be better and I'm going to take the time to talk to you so that you can fix that. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things at the, at the core root of that, when it comes to just taking the time to, to understand the student, you, you've got to build that relationship first. And, and we were talking about Ron Clark a minute ago, and, and that's one of the things I noticed visiting the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta as well, is that the, the relationship was so strong between um, him as a teacher or principal and the students that he didn't even have to use words to deliver um, a redirection. And, and it wasn't even a punishment, but a, a redirection in there. Um, where do where do relationships fit with this restorative practice? Because if I'm, you know, if I'm a student, you know, I'm broken and we can get into the other ways that, that students, teachers, and people are broken as well. If I'm a broken student and you come in here trying to, um, or I do something wrong, you try to, to uplift me in a way, I still might not understand what's really, what you're really trying to do for me. So where does the relationship component of um, restorative justice come into play? Well, I think whether it's academics or culture, um, I think the old adage, and my, my man Jalen Rose, when I used to listen to his podcast, would say, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So whether it's these math, math problems that are sitting on the board, or you're disagreeable, disagreeable, just you being disagreeable about behavior, they are not going to care, especially in an inner city setting, setting until they know that you've been invested in who they are as people, because that is what respect is. In most households, people say, hey, you don't just get respect, you earn respect. And the best way to earn respect is to actually be intentional and getting to know your students. Mm-hmm. So within TC Howe, and even when I was at CICS Lloyd Bond, we were very intentional with making sure that every single teacher was able to share the best parts of themselves to students long before we were gonna demand that they expect the best of their students in the classroom, both academically and culturally. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I love that there's so many layers to this that we can get to. Um, let, let's take, I, I don't know if it's a step back or forward, but thinking about from the teacher perspective, um, you've got to be at a place as a teacher to be willing enough to, to, not, to not reprimand a student or, or to take the easy way out, go to the office, uh, you know, go to the corner. You've got you to be willing to not take the easy way out and really make yourself vulnerable enough to, to share pieces of who you are as a teacher, the places that you might be broken as a teacher, and offer that to your students so that they can begin to build that trust um, with you. When, when you're starting, um, when you're starting in the school year, I'm thinking about, you know, we're at the end of a school year now, I'm thinking about going into the next school year and, and putting a priming plan together for teachers to build that relationship with the first week or first two weeks. What would you say about that and, and how teachers can be vulnerable in building those relationships with students? So I think, um, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that like many times our teachers are so eager to just get in and jump into the instruction, right? Especially mm-hmm. when you sit through professional development and people are like, hey, 
you got to make these games and you don't have a lot of time to do it. Mm-hmm. So they try to focus on that. And what we do is, what, we, what I've done as a leader over the past um, six years that I've been an administrator is do the opposite and truly invest, even in high school, between a week to three weeks to build out those components of relationships and expectations so that you don't have to necessarily, there isn't a single student in the building who says, I still don't know who my teacher is. Mm -hmm. And the way I break that down is simple. We break a period down into four quadrants and we say, you're going to hit all these four quadrants the first week to three weeks of school Mm -hmm. to make sure that everybody knows. I know you and you know me and you know the expectations. So what I would say is this, the first, the first quadrant I'd say is, 10 to 15 minutes, we'd be fo- we would focus on the expectation. We're going to teach the expectation, then we're going to model the expectation. And then while you're teaching and modeling the expectation, the second quadrant, we're going to step back and we're going to say, okay, now the teacher's the expert, and I want the student to teach each other the expectation and model the expectation with feedback from the teacher and from their fellow students. Mm-hmm. Then the third quadrant, and this is very key, we play a game, something fun. Heads up, seven up, four corners. And don't you think for a second that those high school kids don't want to play the games. They do. They may fake like they don't want to do it, but they want to have fun. Right. And they want to do the games. Um, and there's lots of resources to be able to find classroom games. And then the last quadrant is solely about that teacher, where they will put up a photo of something, a vacation, your child, your friends, a fun place you like to go, your favorite food, your something, right? Or something that's very personal and touching to them. And they explain to the class for five minutes about that picture, and then they open it up to questions so the students Mm -hmm. can ask any respectful question that they want. So that by the end of that period, you not only have covered the basis of knowing exactly what that expectation is, and when you do it in a high school, first period, Every teacher does the same expectation. Second period, everyone does the same expectation, so there's no overlap. Yeah. But the actual piece of the teacher um, sharing about themselves is solely on the teacher. And from my experience, the teachers who take that four-quadrant system seriously in the long run have far more instructional time to be able to teach Mm -hmm. their students because they built a relationship with them to be able to allow them the opportunity to teach their students because yeah. no one is going to learn from you simply because you're their teacher. Yeah. They're going to learn from you because you, they allow you to teach them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's real. So, and you do that, is that a, is that do that every, every day, the first week when you come into to my class in first period, we're going to go through some variation of these four quadrants. Absolutely. Hmm. Mm. Every single period. And what, what, what comes of it is students then begin to feel more comfortable to share things about themselves. Yeah. So it feels weird at first, especially if you come from like almost like a suburban environment. Like, dude, when are we going to get to the math, right? When are we going to get to the science and social studies? But once they figure out that like, look, this is something that is it's going to be this way and it's going to be that way for a while. Yeah. They buy in. Yeah. And once they buy in, they say, okay, well, you know, um, I'm going to give my instructor a chance to like teach me. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I love that so much. I love that so much. So what, you know, thinking about moving, moving forward off of that, let's think about some of the ways that, um, 
how are students broken? You know, I, I'm going to get off the teachers for a second because I know teachers are going to have their own pains and, and baggage from childhood. In, in what ways is um, a student in today's classroom, you know, we can talk about a city setting, urban setting, you know, black students in particular. What are some of the, the what are some of the brokenness that our students are facing today in class? You know, um, when I became a high school principal, it was the first time in my entire life that I'd actually like worked in high school. Hmm. And this is actually like something I, I think is pretty emotional for me because the reason why education is like a life mission and, and the reason why we do what we do is because when you click with a student and for the first time in their life, they decide that their education matters, hmm. it is truly something special but it can be so heartbreaking when they realize for the first time that education matters when they're like a senior. And I experienced that when I, when I first got to my school at TC Howe on the east side of Indianapolis, yeah. where I was meeting students who were looking me in my eyes like, yo man, I believe in you. I believe in the school. I want to graduate. The problem is that I ain't cared over the last three years and I got full credits tonight. Right. Where, you have students, and this is real talk. I'm gonna give a student an award. I'm gonna shout out Mia. I'm gonna give a student an award tomorrow because she's been so helpful with her classmates over the past two months with the CTE mm. to graduate. But when I first met her, she was in 11th grade and she looked at me and she said, yo, you don't even know who I am. And I was like, nah baby, nah, baby I don't know you. She was like, last year, you would have known me. Cause Mr. Knight, I was bad, mm. but you know what? I don't want to be bad anymore. Mm. Mm. I say these stories to tell you this, especially in high schools and middle schools, there is so much conditioning that happens Wow. at home. There's so much conditioning that happens <laughs> in elementary school. Can you imagine going to elementary school for the first day of school and you've never, you don't know your numbers, you don't know your colors, you don't know your letters, you don't know your letter sounds, and there's kids next to you that know all that and then some. That's real. Can you imagine feeling completely defeated in education at five years old? Mm. And then wearing that baggage with you and never truly catching up because your school is where it is, has the resources it has, and isn't able because of either effective leadership or leadership within the classroom to catch you up to level so that you could even have a shot at being successful by the time you get to me in high school it is absolutely heartbreaking yeah and i've seen that in education that is why like elementary is so important because it can make or break a student's trajectory for the rest of their education career yeah because there's, like I said, there's so much conditioning that happens before a kid steps foot in my building in seventh grade that we fight so hard. So, so I'll give you one last quantitative example. 5% of my seventh graders last year on the state test were proficient. Mm -hmm. None were proficient the first day of school in seventh grade last year. Right now, that same cohort of students look poised to hit 30% proficiency Wow! this year on the state test. That's significant. It's significant, but think about how sad that is. Yeah. Three out of 10 kids in my grade are still not proficient. Mm. 
You're trying to fight against all the conditioning that happened before they got to you, but they still expect you to teach everyone at a high level. It's unfair to the students, it's unfair to the kids, but we fight through it, through innovation, through restorative practices, like we said before, right? And through being innovative with curriculum and different things like that. Yeah. Like, that's my experience with yeah. like what, what education is when a student finally decides, oh my gosh, like it's clicked for me. We're ready to really do this. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, I think, I think that's also a lesson in looking at growth versus achievement. You know, and that number, while it's only at 30%, that's right. at what? 500% from what? 600% growth, right? 600% growth, you know, okay, the whole class, you're right, the whole class is not achieving at um, a prodigious level, but the, you, you had a 600% increase in growth. That's restorative justice. That's, that's taking uh, 5%. That's probably what, two students? Yeah. <laughs> 30%, I mean, if you talking about a classroom of 20, um, yeah, one student would be 5%, 30% would be 5%. We, we had about 70 students in the cohort. Okay. We talk about mm, four. Yeah, four, four students yeah. and then moving that up to, to, to 10 or 12 students. I mean, that's that's real, you know, and, and I know you want to do more than reach just one student, but but that that's that's exactly what restorative justice is. You're taking someone that was broken and creating an opportunity for them to grow, lead, and experience. I had a conversation with a principal named Chris Reese, and he was talking about how schools almost condition you for a prison to or school the prison pipeline from the standpoint of um, you know lining up in a straight line. What what is it? Um, conformity. You know you yeah. you conform to the norms. That line up in a straight line. You know raise your hand to speak. Ask to go to the back. I mean some just some small things that you can argue. Yeah. You know both sides of that coin. But it almost trains you for incarceration, isolation. You know just being told what to do and give directives in yeah. um, community development, asset based community development. They, they call it uh, creating consumers rather than producers. And, and that's what you can look at restorative justice as, as in the same way. It's taking students that have been trained up to be consumers, regurgitating information or, or not really buying into an education system and turning them into producers of knowledge and, and creators of, of mental wealth and well-being through um, building them up and, and the capacity that they have within them, bringing the star out of the student that doesn't know and has never been told they have a star in them. Can I can I can I can I chime in? Join me. I, I have I, I I was I just got a fresh cut. I just left the barbershop. <laughs> you know, and I, I was talking you. about I was talking about something where you know I took a grad school class. Um, and it was the best class I had in grad school in the summertime, and it was around curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we open one book or talk about one standard. We talked about, you know, the history of education a lot and how we look at success of students. Trey, I have a student in my school who can play football lights out, mm -hmm. basketball with the best of them, sing like genuine, <laughs> dance like Michael, seriously. Wow. Rap like Nas writes lyrics, mm. produces, draws, sculpts. He is the most talented young man I've ever met in my life. And he struggles 
with school because that is not where his genius is. Mm. And I bring this up because as a people, we got to find a way to not make a kid who was brilliant in all those things feel like a failure because they can't conform, sit down in class and do work the way that our Eurocentric brother and sister, brother and sisters want them to. We have a broken education system where that student can sit down and look me in my eyes and say, man, I'm trying the absolute best I can, but I'm failing and there's nothing I can do about it hmm. because I can't fulfill the requirements that the state of Indiana says are required for me to feel like a success when I am so successful in all these other things. And I feel like that is like so aligned with what you just said, because we need to be able to find a way for our students who learn differently, yeah. differently, act differently, have different values to still find success. Just be, even though they may not be able to do it exactly the way they want you, you want them to do it in your classroom. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Oh, no, I, I, I agree. No, I agree. I think there's, I remember, I remember a couple years ago myself, and I'm not going to go too deep in the story. I remember somebody um, was telling me about one of the local high schools and how the graduation track was planned for these students before they got there. You know, you have your individual graduation plan stuff. I'm like, man, that's crazy. Like, why would you tell a student that they couldn't do this, that, or the other? Go to college, get a job, whatever the case is. And now that, that I've been working so much more closely with students from an academic perspective, the beginning of my career was in student affairs, so it was more social. I wasn't really digging into academics. But now that I get to see both sides of that coin, I see that there, there's some students that have abilities that are indeed, in fact, outside of the classroom. A lot of students that I'm working with have to take classes online. That's not for everybody. Online is not for everybody. You know, but, but I see how this student is able to make the rest of the class laugh. I, I see how another student has wants to be a police officer and has the, the way to carry themselves with that, or a student wants to, to be an artist or a designer or a drawer, and, and I have an opportunity. A lot of what I do is, is career development, college and career development. So I have an opportunity to, to guide them towards that path that they need, whether it's a four-year, two-year career in technology education certification help them understand a little bit more about who they are so they can have that path. You know, education is, is definitely broken, but I think that there's finally starting to be ways and, and innovations that are helping, you know, every student succeed, um, whoever I'm quoting there. But there's, there truly is a way for you to, to bring out the success in every student. And it's okay if that doesn't look the same for every student in your classroom. I, you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, personalized education was a really yes. big buzzword, um, I'd say, like, 10 years ago. You, you have know. to. Yeah. And I think, I, think, I think the thing is, is, like, we were very stuck on the modalities of learning, um, you know, auditory or um, kinesthetic, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And I think, I think from my perspective, I would love an opportunity for, like, once certain structures are put in place for school to feel and look more like what these Montessori schools look like for the affluent communities. Low key. It's choosing their own pathway. Yeah. 
to success yeah. rather than a teacher designing and telling you where your pathway to success is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I think in so many ways, like when I first learned about the Daily Five and differentiated instruction, I was the only black male educator in the entire auditorium when I was at the National Reading Association back in New Orleans back maybe like eight years ago. And when I was sitting there and I was listening to this, I was like, this is the key to urban education. And I felt like that in the moment. And I think our data like bore that out over the next two years. And as my own superintendent sends his kids to Montessori school, Mm -hmm. um, you realize like many, in many ways, those who are in the know pick up these things faster and can identify pathways for their children to find success a lot quicker than they will allow urban educators to be innovative as well to yeah. find, find success for students who are in communities that need it the most, if that well, makes sense. Well, and, and I'm going to take it out of the classroom for so, a second myself. I, so outside of my consultancy and in everything I do in education, I'm a representative on city council in the city of Hartsfield. And um, the district that I, I represent is, is minority black, or majority black, excuse me. Um, 30% of people that live in my district don't have cars. The average annual income is $8,000 versus the, the white income is $27,000. Um, 50% have not graduated from high school. They, just this section of the neighborhood, we were voted an all-American city. Um, for the second time in 2016, yet the black people in, in my community call it Killerville. Uh, and, and all the crime happens really and truly, just, just keeping it all the way 100. I live, it's a small town, we got 8,000 people. I live two blocks from downtown. I can walk out of my house and get to downtown to the YMCA in, in two blocks. I'm also two blocks from the hood. So when I go to sleep at night with my wife, I can hear the gunshots. Um, I can hear I can hear what's going on with when I wake up in the morning to read the newspaper or I get the police report. The streets that they're talking about are literally two streets down the block from where I'm at. And the, the crazy thing is now I see that um, that that people don't believe that good can come from the neighborhood in a lot of ways. And even the people that live in the neighborhood um, don't believe that good can come out of it. When you when you put good energy into a place that the bad energy goes somewhere else. But it's been there so long that the way of teaching has been the same so long. The students have been, have been in poverty so long. The way people think have thought that way for so long. When, when something comes to try and change that, you get a bite back from every direction, from the students that it's going to um, benefit and impact the most to the people that have never been in the neighborhood they all want to bite back and say, well, you can't put a park here because people are just going to come and sell drugs. Well, you can't put a basketball court here because it's going to be too loud for the neighbors. Well, you can't put the student in that high class because they don't have the skills necessary. You, you can't take this person to AP or take them on a college visit because they don't have the money to be able to go. We sabotage so many times and we put up barriers, invisible barriers for our students and for ourselves um, that are sometimes are hard to break down. I'm not going to say impossible. That become difficult to break down, and then everybody gets disheartened on the way. So I think, you know, again, bringing it back to sort of justice, when when you're able to get to the root of the pain, and that starts with building the relationship. To me, 
building relationship means that you got to make yourself vulnerable. Uh, oh. Renee Brown, um, phenomenal book, Daring Greatly. She says a lot of people think that vulnerability is a sign of weakness, that it makes you weak and that people will take advantage of you. But it, it's not at all that way. When you're able to show vulnerability, people see that as courageous. They see it as brave. They see it as strong because you're able to open up your heart and give it to somebody. And that's when people can come back and, and give that same thing to you. So I'm I, I'm gonna step off my soapbox for a minute, but I think you know you you nah, we you, get you, you, go ahead go ahead you you are, you you're just so on target. I mean, I remember being um, and everywhere I've gone as a principal, I've always worked in the community as well. So I would go to community meetings, and when they would talk about programs and stuff. There was a genuine lack of trust when great people came into the neighborhood to do yeah. things for them because they were terrified, not of the program, but that every time something came into the community and it started working, someone was working behind the scenes to take it mm-hmm. away from them. Mm-hmm. So a general lack of trust yeah. come at those times, especially for older people who seemed the magic bullet come yeah. over and over again. Yeah. Sometimes it work. If it's working, you take it away. If it's not working, you take it away. So they don't feel comfortable accepting outside influence. And then it even goes back to like a traditional like anti-charter discussion where, frankly, you have these white people <laughs> who mm-hmm. want to come into my community and tell me that we are doing things the right way and you're not going to listen to us and include us in the process to make sure that what you're going to bring to us is sustaining and lasting Mm -hmm. and you don't think we're intelligent enough to be able to get a strong opinion on that. So I'm sure there's great people like you in the community who have great ideas to bring great things to the community that will stop the violence, that will curve crime and different things like that. But where the restorative piece comes in and the relationship piece comes in, you have a heavy job before you, brother, because you have to convince people that um, for a long time might feel like things have been okay. Tell you that maybe you have to be able to tell them, look, I think there's a better way and you got to do that through a restorative mind and a loving mind and a relational mind as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree. I think there's, you know, in education as well as in community relation, there's gatekeepers, right? And there's, we have, we have um, baby boomers are the largest generation and our, our black baby boomers went through segregation. They went through Jim Crow. They went through a lot of tension that they haven't healed from in a lot of ways. And, and same for, for, for white folks. Um, in the community and in education, we've got gatekeepers who have been um, brought up a certain way, that, who have also been through Brown and Board of Education, who have also been through the Little Rock Nine and, and all those kind of things who are, are almost stuck in a set of ways. And at some point, when you're, when you're talking about, um, I, I, I don't really mean elderly or senior citizens, but folks that have a, a long tenure, how about that? Folks that have tenured, how much can you ask somebody to grow? You know, I've already I've already expanded to the capacity that I can. Uh, I've been doing this for 25, 30 years, and you want me to continue to grow and evolve. But I think the changing in the guard is is here now, and I think there's so much innovation in our world, from 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 Donald Trump to education. 
the guard is changing because now that that generation that was baby boomers, which was the largest in our nation and in the world, is now being um, they don't have a choice. They don't want to see see the power, but it's now moving to uh, a much more millennial focused generation where 50% of millennials are now in the workforce and see the world in a completely different uh, perspective. And, and the gap in the middle is Generation X, the folks born between 65 and, and about 85 to 90. That's the gap where, where things have kind of been stagnant for so long, where baby boomers had power for 50 years, 60 years, still holding on. Generation X was just kind of hanging off in their life. Now millennials and, and Gen Z who are coming up right after us are like, no, we'll, we'll take it from here. You know, we have the yeah. capacity, we have the will to to grow and to restore. Because when I, even when I was growing up, diversity, inclusion, those were buzzwords. Yeah. Now those are staples. Now those are necessities. Equity, diversity, inclusion, those are those are not optional anymore. Is is what I'm seeing in education. I think that's a that's a positive note um, of restorative justice. And I think these these practices are going to become more more common knowledge. I don't think every school is doing social emotional learning. I don't think every school knows about restorative practice um, and, and asset-based community development using the talents, tools, resources that exist on your campus and capitalizing on those. But I think that I think it's here right now and it's going to continue to to expand in the coming 5, 10, 20, 50 years. Well, I mean, I think the people you described, the millennials and Generation Z, I think they got to be able to recognize their power. Mm -hmm. And to understand those generations, they value having influence and being able to feel like their job is changing the world. Mm. They value that more than simple, simple just success or me just making a, a few more dollars. Right. I think with them having that mindset, and you know, you have some people, well, they're snowflakes or whatever. I, I don't, I don't characterize them as that. I, I characterize them as, as the generation that truly feels like, hey, we're going to create a world where diversity and inclusion are not just buzzwords, mm -hmm. but are actually practiced because we lived through it. We saw growing up that uh, there were people different than us and we loved them anyway. And now as we grow older, we're going to demand those from the generations that come before, yeah. you know. And, and continue to model that. Yeah, yes, sir. So we're, we're, I think we've gone on um, a, a good bit. And I think everything is still focused on restorative uh, practices and justice. I do want to get into um, your introduction to the restorative practices. I think you have an interesting introduction that I, I think would be valuable to share. Love that. So uh, as a final quarter grad student at DePaul University, and not thinking that our discipline structure was working within my school on the far south side of Chicago, Oakdale Gardens, CICS Lloyd Bond. Hmm. I, um, one evening was watching TV and Chicago Land came on. And they had uh, this principal who was young and energetic. And then they had this young brother who, um, his name escapes me right now, but he was leading circles. Mm. within the school, and he was describing how leading circles would um, set the school up for future success because restorative practices were better than, you know, um, punitive punishment. So that had me thinking at the time, and I was like, wow, okay, I need to learn more about this because I see a problem, and I see a solution 
to, that, that needs to be identified. So they actually, some, some practice, practitioners in restorative justice visited my school one day and asked for a meeting because the local coalition within our housing project had written a grant for free training for every school within the housing project. Wow. So my principal at the time said, eh, we don't need this. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, she resigned um, about a month later. And my first act was to pick up the phone and call them, Cheryl and Pamela Pirtle. And when I called them, I said, hey, I want to become a, uh, I want to become a circle keeper and my dean needs to too. What do we have to do? So what they did is, is they gathered about six other people and we met for four consecutive days at a Buddhist temple in um, the uh, South Shore neighborhood of, um, of Chicago. And I'm chuckling because it just brings back so many memories because what I learned over those four days was um, I was broken down. Hmm. I was built back up. And on that day, I, I, I had the perfect launch. Those days, I had the perfect launch to my future as an administrator. And it was the most reflective time I think I may have ever had in my life as my body was almost humming. Wow. Because I felt so connected to the people who were in that room. I felt so connected to the centerpiece um, carpet and the talking pieces. And um, I felt so connected to the idea of being um, in a safe space that I knew we would build a peace room in my school. We would include restorative practices in our new discipline model that me and my dean, Marcel Kirk, would be writing. And that... Um, I would uh, have an opportunity um, to bring this to a neighborhood that needed it desperately. Because the thing is, is this. Indianapolis is pretty rough. Chicago's rough. <laughs> and, Chicago. <laughs> and when I tell you that, you know, what, what launched that day and what came out of it is, I not only did circles with kindergartners, I was able to start doing circles with teachers who had issues with parents. I was able to have circles with parents who had issues with teachers. I was able to have circles with students who had issues with each other. We had circles to celebrate success within our, our school with restorative justice and allowing the talking piece to go around the circle and people to express themselves as long as they wanted to without interruption and rules like every eye has to be on you because you're going to get the attention you deserve. And what came out of that is eventually, and this is a story I tell all the time, and this is how powerful restorative justice is to me. I had two families in the middle of my lawn, the kids fighting. We go to break up the fight. The parents speed up in cars, mm. hop out the cars. They're trying to fight each other. The kids stop fighting and separate their parents because, Mama, you on probation. Mm. Go back to jail. They speed off. They cut each other off on the road. And, you know, in a housing project, the road ain't but so wide. <laughs> right? They called me and said, Mr. Knight, because their kids had been suspended before. Mr. Knight, can I have a circle with this yeah. parent so that I can 
figure out what's going on and why we're at each other's throats like this. Wow. So the other parents showed up the next morning. I sat her down. And I said, ma'am, I think we should work this out because the one thing we can't have is violence. Mm. We went up to my peace room. They began the discussion. And because, you know, there's confidentiality there, I'm not going to share the detail. Right. But what I will share is this. Two things occurred in that circle. One, they found out they were cousins. <laughs> and the second thing is, on their own, they came up with their own resolution to the issue to have two family dinners over the next three weeks so that their kids could truly get to know each other so they wouldn't put their hands on each other again. That's outside the school. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's why I know restorative justice works. Because when people wanted to hurt each other and kill each other, they found ways to talk through their issues so that we didn't have to do that. Now, does restorative justice work all the time? No, right? I mean, there's going to be times where people walk away, they just feeling like they're full of boo-boo and they're going to do what they do. But when the times it works, you truly feel like you've, you've helped someone in a, in, a, in, a, in a really positive way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, I think um, that's powerful, number one, you know, I think that speaks to the context that you're teaching in. And that's some, that's some good insight for myself. I've only done restorative circles with students and students. So, uh -huh. but if I have definitely had interactions where now that you mentioned it, I could definitely, well, we've, I guess we've done teachers to teachers from a, um, from an in-service type of perspective, just getting to know each other kind of bonding thing. Um, but, but I haven't thought about parents and students or parents and parents or parents and teachers and, all the variations of the circles that you can do. So I appreciate that. That's a golden nugget right there. I, it, it sounds to me from, from the conversation that we've been having, relationships are number one to restorative justice and the restorative circle from, again, our conversation now in the past history of restorative justice over the past few years, that restorative circle seems like one of the foundations of restorative practices in the classroom as well. What would you say is the, the third piece, or if we want to round out a, a top five, if I want to just get a start on how to implement restorative practices in my school next year, I'm doing relationships, I'm, I'm starting my restorative circle, what would be number three? I think, uh, let me give you maybe a three, four, five, because I'd like to really like break that down, you know yeah, what I'm saying? That works. I'd say number three is a solid, confidential peace room. Mm. A place where students can go with an adult that is off the beaten path where they can go confidentially and work out their issues in a safe space. If kids know there's a circle going on in the room, right? Yeah. If students hear them outside, they may be less likely to share. They may be less likely to get to the root of the problem. Mm. Um, I'd say number four is restorative chats. And you've heard me say that before. A circle is a long drawn out process that you will feel exhausted yes. at the end of it. There is no such thing as a quick circle for an hour, right? You gotta get to the heart of it. You have the activity that starts, introductions, greetings, rules, and then you begin probing as a peacekeeper to get to the solution um, with a resolution coming at the end that is a unanimous thing amongst everyone in the circle. Restorative chats are more one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two, right? Where you either have a 
practitioner in restorative justice having a conversation with one student, probing them for them to see where the harm is and the behavior they've been doing, or it is a quick, you two have an issue with each other, I am here as a restorative justice practitioner to give you both a safe space in this hallway to discuss mm -hmm. with each other your issue so that we can get back to the business of education. Um, I'd say the fifth thing, and I think this is the most important, it, it, well, not the most important, but very important, is having um, a setting in your peace room where you can quickly get to um, the circle in a very like interesting way with decorations, chairs are already set up, the rug is already laid out with talking pieces. Um, because you don't want to spend time like, okay, now you guys sit down and let me set up everything. That room should be a place where you can go right in and flow right into a discussion so that you can get to the heart of issues um, sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think that, that that's brought clarity to a lot of people right now, just now, um, getting, that, getting that down pat because it's not, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be, you know, hours and hours of research and all kinds of stuff. Well, I mean, you still got to do your research to figure out how it applies Ooh. to the school. But yeah. th those are five simple steps that you, you can apply right now. If it's, uh, you're about to start a school year in a month, you can learn what you need to know to put those situations um, in place. And, and I, just to, to comment on those, the restorative circle, you're absolutely right about the timing of those. If you start a circle, it, it, I think it's better to be proactive with this and, and include yes. that in as a part of your priming plan to start a school year as you're building relationships, starting off with those positive restorative circles. It doesn't have to always be when there's a fight or something, but doing it on the front end so students understand that expectation because they it will, it will throw off your, your schedule. If you are self-contained, you're going to miss some, some instruction time. If you're rotating in class, you might miss some of your bell schedules. Um, well, brother, what I would say to that, and like sometimes teachers, if they aren't trained in restorative justice, will not see the benefit. Hmm. And like, man, these kids just trying to get out of class. Yeah. No, ma'am. They're trying to get back into your class. They are willing to fix their issues so that they do not disrupt your classroom with their issues. Yeah. And the truth is, is that even in an elementary setting, um, back when I was in Chicago, kids would walk up to us and ask for the circle hmm. more than an adult recognizing that kids needed a circle. Yeah. And I would have people walking up to me that, and say, well, how are you going to prevent them from just like, you know, <laughs> taking advantage of that? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Once a practitioner recognizes that students are taking advantage of an opportunity to fix hmm. heal alarm, now you get to exclude them from the process. You do not respect this room. You do not respect this process. And now we will not allow you to fix your problems with this. And I feel way more confident giving you a punitive yeah. um, at that point because we've tried our best to restore you yeah. and you're using the opportunity to do so. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, and I think, you know, digging deeper to that, I, I appreciate um, the thought both of the the peace room, you know, I, I, I know in, in my situation, I, I talk to I talk to teachers about having a refocus area or even bouncing students to another class um, and letting them kind of refocus in there. But I like the idea of having that that peace room where it's it's in confidence, where I can get out of the class and away from everybody um, and get to the bottom of what I'm dealing with. 
Um, same with those restorative chats. Some people might call it a check-in, check-out. I think these are these are the same concepts that you may be using in your classroom, but with a, a twist that is more focused on uh, restoration rather than zero toleration. Uh, right. I just had to hit that rhyme right there. So uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, being proactive with it and, and all. So I think that's a that's a great round out, man. Anything else, Lloyd? Before we close this out, man. This shoot time the time keeps on slipping, man. I'm 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 so excited. I can't even. Yeah. We've been talking for a good minute. Hey man, look, look, look! I, I, whenever we have conversations, Trey, you know, I think there's just there's just so much gain to, to, to put out there, and you know, um, we're both educators, and um, I think I think it's just good for us to be able to, like I said, share share the love and share the ideas because I want everybody to win. You know what I'm saying? And whether it's you know, um, young brothers and sisters just getting a start in education because you know we need them. And we've discussed this last time, man. Two percent of all educators in this country are African American males. Mm-hmm. That's something that has to change, and the way we change that is because we have to demand excellence from every single one of us when they step into a classroom. Um, my name is Lloyd Knight. Uh, you can find me on social media at Lloyd the Outlier on Instagram, at Lloyd the Outlier on Twitter. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Lloyd Knight. Um, I'm, I'm a, I am a free resource mm. to education and um, you can find me on LinkedIn and I, I definitely am always willing to have conversations with people and I want, I want everyone's practice to get, get better. So um, I may have a uh, big announcement um, by the next time you, you uh, to me, there's some things coming down the pipe, but uh, you know, I'm just Trey, I'm thankful um, to be here to be able to share information about restorative justice, about um, education, because you know, I want us all to win and, and yeah. I'm looking or to hopefully, you know, a great response from this podcast because I think there was a lot of good game discussed today. Yes, sir. Well, one of the great, one of the only turnaround specialists in the country. Ah. <laughs> we did it twice, Trey. We did it. We did it elementary. We did it middle high. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think where I am in my career is that, you know, um, we've wrapped up the, 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 the this past turnaround. And I think it's time to... Uh, mm. Go on to the next. Yeah, let's go to the next. You know, so excited about the next journey, and you know, uh, we're gonna be great. I love it. We'll we'll definitely have to bring you back at the start of the next journey, so we can get a beginning and end of that situation where your mindset is going into um, a new turnaround school, and and follow up with that and see what kind of changes have have happened over the the first year or quarter semester, whatever the case is. So I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you, man. I, I I can't wait to. Um, continue our conversations off off the air as well and um, thank you all for listening if you like this episode share it with someone that needs to hear it your, your co-workers your co-teachers your POC team your superintendent your principal share this word spread this message we're doing what we can to bridge the gap in education through challenging meaningful significant conversation this is Trey Gamage this is The Dash we'll see you next time